Hello, I'm Cathy Harvey, and you're listening to Inspiring Women, a podcast series from Oxford University's Said Business School, a series of talks focusing on the experience and the insight of female leaders. In this episode, we meet Meg Lussman, who's had a long career as one of the most senior women CEOs and directors in UK retail. Her CV reads like a who's who of the UK high street. It includes roles in John Lewis, Coast, Karen Millen, Oasis and Warehouse. And during that time, she's seen the British high street radically transform. Meg is now starting a new stage of her career as an executive advisor. But until recently, she was the CEO of Hobbs, one of the UK's best-known women's fashion retailers. Like many other high street fashion retailers, Hobbs has been through huge change in order to survive. And Meg was right at the forefront of that evolution. So how did she get here? A language graduate, after a short stint in publishing, Meg's first break was at the retail conglomerate Sears. I asked her how and why that was so important in her career. So I was in my mid-twenties, and I think at that age you have a lot of ideas, you think you can take on a lot of things, but actually the move from one industry to another um, and it being successful was was sort of like one of the key things that actually helped me build my courage, helped me build my my belief that um, that what I could do was, was transportable. So I think that was the first thing that made it really important. And the reason that I chose to move from business to business publishing into um, Sears was because I wanted to get closer to the customer um, and I wanted to have um, the opportunity to be marketing more directly to her. So, and in my world, um, my customers tended to be women. So forgive me when I say her, it's shortcut. But, uh, and so that got me closer to the customer. And then it gave me an opportunity to use my languages because Sears had a big European ambition at the time that I went to join it. And that therefore gave me the opportunity to live abroad, open businesses abroad. And um, yeah, so it was a great move. So you, you were using your academic background, the background you had from university, as well as your MBA to get that first big break. And that decision about going to work at Sears, how much did you think it through? Because we talk a lot here about, you know, planning your career and making strategic moves. How, how much was it a strategic move or did you just take the opportunity? It was certainly strategic in the sense that I knew I had done as much as I was interested in, in business to business publishing. So I thought about which other industries would use my, my direct marketing skills, which were the skills I had at the time. So it was, it was strategic in the sense of looking across different sectors and deciding which sectors interested me in financial services. And that was how I got into Sears, through the financial services arms. Um, that was, you know, that was a good user of... So, and I knew that that would then get me into a larger organisation, give me the opportunity to make my mark if I could. So strategic in the sense that I knew what I wanted to achieve in five years' time. I didn't know what the exact next step would be, um, but this felt right. And, and from then, you know, you went on to work for different companies, but also you stayed with the same group for quite a long time. How did that happen? Why did you decide to stay with them? Was it because you got lots of different opportunities or was it just that, you know, you settled into that role and then someone offered you a slight change in, in the organisation? Um, because you it stayed, was, I think, with one group for... Uh, for the best part of 20 tw- years. Yeah. 20 years, yes. yeah. It was a long time. Um, I think the 
I mean, most of you won't have heard of Sears. Sears in the UK was a very large conglomerate that owned um, lots and lots of retail, you know, all sorts of things, children's wear, men's wear, shoes, fashions. So it was a very, very large conglomerate. And we don't really have those conglomerates in the UK as much anymore, which is a shame, actually, because conglomerates are great because they have businesses of lots of different sizes, lots of different purposes. And therefore, if you have a good sponsor and have a good reputation in a conglomerate, it does give you quite a nice way to be able to take advantage of opportunities as they arise. But I think that I didn't stay anywhere longer than two years in in my whole time that I was there. And most of it was because I would spot an opportunity. And those opportunities might be partly about the content of the job, but also about the people that I wanted to work with. Um, So I was able to sort of identify people that I liked who were doing interesting things in different parts of uh, the organisation and, and really sort of like woo them and charm them and, um, and, and persuade them to take me onto their team. So it was, part, it was mostly self-directed. And it's, it's a long way from those early years to turning round Hobbs, mm. which um, we should sort of say a little bit of background about it. It was in, uh, it was in a bad state when you took it on as CEO and mm. it was owned, it had been owned by 3i, the venture capital group. Can you say a little bit about mm. how you made that decision to go into effectively a turnaround job and just tell us a little bit about how, how bad it was <laughs> when you lifted the lid mm. and you could see the scale of the task you, you had to um, undertake. So I think it had lost 40% mm. of its investment value. Mm. So Hobbs had been a very, very successful very highly profitable business, um, as Cathy says, owned by private equity for a long time. Um, and its its problems really came about both self-inflicted and part, partly because of the industry. So for those of you that um, remember how we used to shop 20 years ago when there was a high street and we were very limited in terms of the choices we could make and how we shopped and where we shopped and what we shopped, um, as you know, in those in the past 10, 15 years, it's really changed dramatically. So we now have the internet, we now have huge choice. So it's gone from being... Um, a world where the brands, the, the businesses, told you what to buy and told you how to buy it and when to buy it and what price to pay, to now customers have perfect knowledge and perfect visibility and they can, um, you know, they, they, they know everything. They know how to get it cheapest, how to get it fastest, um, how to get it at the place that suits them. And I think Hobbs had not kept up with that. Hobbs was very firmly in one model and not just a model of distribution, but also a model of how it presented itself to its customers. So part of what the internet forces businesses to do is to move faster. So, you know, when you put something in front of a customer and she doesn't like it, you know very quickly in this world whether or not she likes it and therefore what you have to do about it. In the old old times, we didn't need, you know, it took time before we realised that. So it just hadn't kept up with the pace of change that was happening around Hobbs. And I think the second thing was that um, having been owned by private equity for a long time, private equities, you know, are always looking for the exit. And in their wisdom, a management team that were rather tired and rather fed up took a really balmy decision around a repositioning um, that would be more attractive to um, a Far Eastern investor. And it just, that repositioning did not play to Hobbes's core strengths or what Hobbes was known for by its customers at all. So one way or another, it was just, and it's one of those moments where the management team have worked so hard to deliver this, this, this repositioning and customers just hate it. And customers um, were just clearly not in love with it at all. Um, so 3i 
obviously being very keen on the numbers, understood that immediately and decided to call in strategy consultants who basically said to them, there's nothing wrong with this business. There's something very wrong with the strategy. The management team, as I say, just were worn out. So actually being able to come in with a fresh pair of eyes and really help the business re-establish what it was good at. I always talked about helping the business fall back in love with its customer um, because I think when you lose the love for your customer and do something that she just doesn't understand, um, then you've, you've lost your way. So really sort of like coming in with my puppy dog energy and saying, you know, how wonderful it is to be in service to a customer like this who really, really treasures Hobbs and Hobbs does something that nobody else on the high street does. Um, so, you know, aren't we lucky to be helping this customer and helping you know, her creative wardrobe that makes sense of her life. So um, it really was, you know, just bringing masses of energy, masses of um, purpose. Um, and, and people, teams like purpose, because when you give them purpose, and when you give them clarity around a strategy, it gives them a sense of that you know what you're doing. <laughs> um, it gives them a sense that it's worth coming into work. And, and it gives them a sense of safety almost, that this is a leader who's got energy, who's got conviction, um, who knows what she's doing, you know, who's got the data to persuade me and persuade others. And therefore, it's, you know, I feel positive coming into work. I can hold, hold my head up. So I think that was sort of like the, the first thing I did. The second thing was really to help the business restructure itself um, to be more relevant, to talk with one voice to its customers across all its channels, to become more broadly distributed, to really think about fashion in the mix, not just what clothes I wear to work. So really to sort of rethink how we did business and therefore restructure it in doing that, to really think about trading. Um, because we had to trade really, really hard and, and make sure that the things we were doing, we were doing in a joined up way. And then last but not least, with all the restructuring and all the re-everything, uh, make sure that the cost didn't creep up. And in fact, we had to take quite a, a deep knife into the cost base, which had become unbalanced for the, for the business we had. So yes, there's quite a lot of yeah. stuff that we had to do in, yes. in, in a relatively <laughs> short space of time. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about that side of things, because... Um, you're obviously you know, an amazing communicator and having that positive message as a leader is something that you know, we talk a lot about um, in the leadership classes and, and yet there's also the finance classes and the accounting classes and the corporate turnaround elective um, and these three classes indicate that in fact you know, it is a bit of a battlefield out there and you're going to have to take some really difficult decisions with people who are going to resist everything you do. You had to make cuts. Um, what, what is your modus operandi for those kinds of decisions? Give us a bit of a sense of how you make them um, and how you go about them. Fairness is really the key thing. And I think, you, you know, as a CEO, your, your only filter is, is this good for the business? You can't afford to fall in love with, you know, Molly, who's been doing this for the last 50 years and isn't she a honey and her cakes are so nice. You just can't afford to do that. It's got to be about what's right for the business um, and what's right for the greater good. So if in sacrificing um, hours or people or departments, it means that the business is fitter and more able to survive, that has got to be the best thing. Um, and I think if you do it in a way that you are really fair and honest um, with people and you tell them why you're having to do it you share with them the imperatives and you explain to them why things are having to decisions are having to be made 
it's the fairest way you can do it. People across, inevitably people across when they're as a cut or where they lose their jobs. But I think you can find ways to make um, their exit more acceptable for them, not just in terms of what you pay them, but also in terms of the coaching you give them, the app placement. And I think every you know, responsible business should really try and make sure that people are prepared for the world ahead of them, that their CV is in good shape, their interviewing skills are in good shape, that they have a strategy around how they're going to find a new job, etc. So we, we would always do that. We would always make sure that they had the app placement skills uh, or the app placement support to be able to help them do their jobs. But really just be very, very clear about why we had to make the changes we were making. How much did you have to cut? Did you close stores? What was the, you know, how much did you have to go down that route in order to get out the other side? And what were the, you know, what was the the worst moment where you thought, are we going to make this work? So one of the biggest areas of cost that had become completely untenable was we had too many hours in the in the stores. So what had happened over time was that uh, women had started, and it was predominantly women that worked in our stores, that work in our stores. Um, they'd come to work as, you know, in their sort of like late 20s, early 30s. Then they started a family. Then they wanted to come back part time. But they didn't want to come back part time at the times that we wanted them to come back. I mean, and because they were Molly and because we liked them and all the rest of it, we kind of like accommodated around it. So we, we had too many hours on the shop floor, which didn't in any way correlate to the footfall, the traffic of customers coming into the, into the stores. So the first thing we had to do was take a very clear footfall traffic base and say, when, when are our customers in the store? When are the tasks that need to be done there? And then make sure that the hours aligned with the tasks and the, the customer flow, et cetera. So actually in total, um, we lost something like 30 to 35% of our hours in stores, which impacted or had the possibility of impacting um, about 250 people, but actually the people, the, the number of people that actually left the business was around 40. That was because the way that we did it, we took them with us. So women that had said that they couldn't work on Saturdays or couldn't do the hours that we were asking them to do, when it came to the sense of actually there won't be a job um, because we, we, we can't afford these hours, they took the job, they took the hours that they, they were offered. Um, and because, and, and they didn't have to, there was, you know, they were, they were being offered redundancy but I think it was the way that we did it because it was very transparent uh, because we took them along with us because we showed them the data that was um, that was behind our decision making um, and and that therefore meant that we kept many more of them than we thought we would we'd be able to. I want to ask you a little bit about mentors and you know when you reach board level it can be very lonely how did you in that situation find support for yourself was it from within the organisation or was it from, you know, friends and mentors and colleagues from your previous jobs? And, and how much did you think about that um, consciously when you were trying to make those decisions? I'm somebody that consults widely. Um, I love benchmarking. I love finding out what other people are doing. I love learning from what other people are doing. Therefore, I have a broad network. Uh, I'm not ashamed to ask for help. In fact, I really welcome help. I make sure that before I embark on something that I've talked it through with people that would know, with people that could challenge me, with people that can help me think things through and make sure that I'm coming to the best decisions. So it, it's just part of the way that I work, that I call on my network a lot. In Hobbs, I was really lucky because I had a great chair 
And I think that just made the biggest difference to my ability to do my job in a healthy way. Um, Phil was, is, he's still alive. He, um, he was exactly what you'd want a chair to be. So he was generous, he was supportive, he was challenging, he was wise, he was experienced. And he made the biggest difference to, to my ability to do my job well. And then I've always believed in coaching as well. So I think, you know, for those of you that are lucky enough to have a coach, a coach just is a safe place for you to really share your fears, your concerns, and know that it's never going to get anywhere else and that you can really work through a plan of action because normally we have the answers ourselves. Amongst the data that we have or that we have access to, you know what the answer is, but actually a coach will help you structure it in a way, well, helps me structure it in a way that makes more sense to me and that I can do best. Do you think the high street's dead for a while? How bad is it going to get before it gets better? I think the UK high street, as we used to know it, is dead. But I think customers still enjoy the human interaction of shops. I think the high street, the future high street, needs to be a much more interesting place. So for those of you that know what I mean, it became very homogenous in the UK. Every high street looked, like, looked the same. Every high street had the same offer of shops. Uh, and there was nothing to distinguish between Oxford and you know, uh, Derby. Um, so actually it became really, really dull for customers, particularly as the dis disintermediation effect of online came about. So actually the way that we're going to get customers going back into um, physical space is by creating something that is more interesting, that's more engaging, um, that may be a hybrid of, of different things. It might, you know, this isn't unusual, but it might be that as you go in to have your nails done, you also can see um, the latest... Uh, you know, a, a loop of, of, of product that you might buy for your night out. So I think there will be different experiences that um, brands will start to um, invest in. I think there are different ways of consumption as well. So particularly in fashion, um, you know, subscription models, um, rental, there are all sorts of new and exciting um, ways of women being able to still have an exciting and ever-changing wardrobe, but without it costing the earth and without it costing them all their money every month. There's lots of different ways that will start to emerge. But I definitely think that the old way of opening your shops and just waiting for people to come through, that is, that is absolutely gone. So um, a, lot, a lot more turbulence likely to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's often said that women take less risk than men uh, and are more risk averse. In your experience, is that true or is it a myth? In my experience, it's a myth. In my experience, women make decisions that take on risk. I mean, I think that... I don't think women are hampered by some sort of aversion to, to risk. I think what happens is that women are probably more thoughtful and probably take on more responsibility personally for what the changes, how the changes will impact other people. So I think what I observe with women is that their boundaries around um, separating their personal self from their business self are not as well constructed as it, they are for men. But I, I haven't yet seen that women are more risk averse than, than men. If the boundaries aren't as, as you say, well constructed as men, does that mean that uh, we as women need to learn from men about how they construct their own boundaries and act in a similar way? Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a certain... <laughs> 
when you're in the grip of feeling really, really, really tormented, there is a certain, you look at these men, some men who are able to sleep at night and going through much, and you, you envy them. So at some level, you do envy them. But I think that it's not about becoming like men. I think it's about taking the wisdom of how they manage um, to keep their sanity and their balance and finding a way to adapt it and bring it into your life rather than becoming a proto-man. So we, we have um, courses here on negotiation and um, we also have through our careers team sessions on networks, networking and looking at gender and negotiation. And the research does seem to show that women often ask for less money and are often uh, less willing to put themselves forward in situations where they have to negotiate their own futures. What kind of advice would you give <laughs> women who are... Do the course. Do the, co- do, the course. <laughs> do the course. I'm a terrible negotiator, so I'm, I'm the worst person to give advice personally. Um, absolutely shocking negotiator. It, it is about how you value yourself. It absolutely is about how you value yourself. And I... You know, I do believe that women are much more humble in terms of the way that they value themselves than um, than their male counterparts. I don't know why. I suppose it's the conditioning over years and um, and the fact that it will take many, many years for it to become, you know, the, the way that we bring up our children starting to really take root. But I'm afraid even with my younger colleagues, um, millennials and Gen Zers, I still see them as the women not having quite the same sense of their own value as, as, as their male counterparts. So practical advice on that is just go out and practice. And you have to go out and practice and find a male sponsor. So, you know, I, I read this rather interesting article recently where it said that women are over-mentored but under-sponsored. And I thought that was an absolutely brilliant insight. Um, sponsorship is what we should be looking for. Mentoring, obviously, is really, really valuable. But men are not sponsoring women to the extent that they should be. And we all need to be finding great sponsors, great male sponsors, and that will help us take on some of those character traits. And, and you know, and I think, you know, those, when, when you're in a business and you're running a business, you have to sort of like put on your personality every day. It's, you know, there are days that you're crippled by doubt and worry and concern and everything else. And you just have to sort of like shrug that off and say, no, I'm going to go in there and be the leader that they need me to be. And you can, you can wing your way and blag your way through a request for a salary increase but you need to know the words you need to know the script you need to you need to get in character is really what I'm saying and I think a man can help you do that what I chose to believe as a woman becoming a leader was that I didn't have to compromise my femininity and I didn't have to compromise the way that I interacted with people and led organizations my first stint was a disaster but that was mostly because I didn't have the support and the sponsorship of the chairman, which is why, you know, I, I do bang on about sponsorship and chairman a lot. At Hobbs, I was able to do it in the way that I wanted to do it. And I was able to do it in a way that was human, that was honest, that um, cared about people, cared about customers, um, and really put those things at the forefront of the way we did things. And, you know, that's part of the reason I was delighted by the success of the business, apart from the fact that, um, it safeguarded jobs, it helped the business grow in all those sorts of things. The bit I look back on with the most satisfaction is the fact that I did it without compromising who I am. You said when we were having the conversation, preparing for this interview, you said there'd been a couple of conversations 
um, with people you'd worked with where in an authentic way you took your chance and made an ask and that shifted your career to another level. I think it would be great to talk about that and say, um, say a little bit about how you had those conversations um, and the difference they made. So uh, the, the one I was talking to Cathy about was um, in my late 20s um, at Sears, uh, a new CEO started and he'd been in position a couple of days. He something A memo got sent to me in the days of memos um, from his office. Um, I looked at it. I literally glanced at it. And within half an hour of it being on my desk, I was asked to come into his office. So I didn't know this man. I knew he was incredibly important. I didn't know why he was asking me into his office. Um, and he asked me about the memo that I'd sent, that he'd sent me. And I had no time for preparation, no time to think it through, and just literally responded from my knowledge, from me, from the authenticity of what, what I knew. And, and I just thought I, I didn't even have time to be scared or overawed or anything else. And I think that goes back to, you know, you just bloody go for it. And I did it and it impressed him. And um, he then met me a few days later and um, explained to me that he'd been used in his previous job to having somebody called an executive aide working with him. And I said, I want the job. And again, it was completely and utterly spontaneous, but on the basis that it just felt right. It just felt right. And I felt I could help this man who was new to the industry, um, who was impressed by something I'd said. Um, and it just, the, the chemistry felt right. And therefore, you know, I, I went for it. So I'd love to say preparation. I think preparation is important when you're doing something that's really uncomfortable. So going back to that conversation about asking for a, a pay rise or I think you do need to prepare for that. I think you do need to rehearse. It. I think you need to take advice. I think you need to learn the lines. But I think there's a whole bunch of other things that um, that come up spontaneously. You just kind of go for it. <laughs> and, and what about the, you know, the issue of women on boards? There's been such a lot of emphasis on that, the 30% club, you know, trying to get more non-execs, um, more women as non-execs on boards. I attended a conference uh, last year where there was a lot of academic discussion about the effectiveness of that and whether it had ever really filtered down to have the effect that um, many people wanted it to have, you know, further down the, the pyramid. I think this is part of my reticence about joining boards because I look at boards and I think that there's something about the women expected to behave like the rest of the board. So actually, if you're a 30%, or even in most cases, a minority of one, really standing true to your, who you are as a feminine leader is, is not that easy. Does that make sense? So I think that's part of the reason that I'm reacting against it, because I think I would have to compromise too much. That doesn't interest me. So I, I, I think it's a tough one, because I don't think we've turned the corner on it yet. And I think, you know... 30% isn't enough. It has to be 50. It has to be a proper split board of men and women where women feel that there are other women around the table who will understand when they say, what about the people? What about the, the culture? And things like that that are more important typically to women than to men. So I think we're in a funny place. I think the intention is there. But actually, I keep coming back to diversity is only an output measure. The behaviour is inclusion and we're not being included yet. And 30% isn't inclusion. You talked about the things that really motivated you throughout this, this session. And 
I wondered if you could just say a little bit about, you know, your throughout your career, before we finish, about the core sort of values and beliefs that really have motivated you. And, uh, you know, it's interesting saying that diversity is really about inclusion and that's what matters most. So behind some of the things you've done, what, what are those, the things that have kept you going in some of the really tough roles that you've had, the, the values and the, the beliefs that, that really matter to you? I think one of the core things for me that makes for a good working relationship, whether it's one-to-one or teams or customers, is, um, is about reciprocity. It's about um, recognising that the people have choices um, and that people need a reason to believe that working, coming to work for your organisation every day is something that's worth their while doing. And actually, if you start off from that position of saying, how do I make this a great working environment for me and for the people that I work with, I think that that starts to pay dividends. I've never had the luxury of working for an organisation that's in the top quartile of, uh, of payers. So I've, I've had to rely on other reasons for people to want to come to work and to give of their best. And that really is around making, making it an inspiring and great place to work. And one final piece of advice that your personal bit of advice to this, um, to this audience here tonight. Enjoy it. I mean, life's short. <laughs> um, and I, I know we'll be working for a very long time, but actually that's part of the reason that you should enjoy what you're doing. Um, because otherwise, you know, never, never be in a position where you give away your power or where you allow somebody else to undermine you or take away your enjoyment of life. You have choices. You're not indentured labour. Use those choices, exercise those choices, and make sure that you're enjoying life and you're learning something from it. After our discussion, Meg took questions from the audience. And here's what she had to say on the issue of sustainability in fashion. I mean, the amount of waste is just shocking. And fast fashion, and, and we all practice fast fashion in one way or another, is, is really awful. So, you know, if, if we take H&M, H&M are doing some extraordinary things on sustainability. Primark are doing some extraordinary things on sustainability and their supply chains, etc. What they can't get away from is the fact that they're fast fashion. And there is a huge amount of waste and lack of, you know, lack of intelligence around the way that we, we're producing fashion. I don't know the answer to that, if I'm totally honest, because customers have become used to newness and they like newness. And much as they expect retailers to produce their clothes in the right way, they don't think about yet about the costs of the earth, the fact that a third of my wardrobe still has the labels on, which means I haven't even worn it. You know, it's, it's a really big problem and I don't know where it's going to end and I don't know that any of the brands have got the courage to start to do it differently because actually if they lose their shirt because they become unattractive to their customers, the hit rate on fashion is, is low. So, you know, of the 500 items that you produce in a season, if 300 of them sell more than 50%, you're delighted by that. That's a great season. That's a terrible statistic. So, you know, what do you do? How do you, you know... How do you create the magic ball that says these are the 300 things that are going to, to really win the customers' hearts? It's, it's impossible. So we all overproduce. And, and, and I'm not proud of it. I'm absolutely not proud of it. But I can't see how we get through it. I think that's, that's a really big challenge. I've heard about personalisation in fashion 
for a long time and it's I'm I'm not seeing it come through. And also, you know, our supply chains, our whole, you know, factories are not are not geared to doing small runs. They're they're all geared to their economies of scale, which say that they do big runs and and, and they so it's 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 an enormous question and I I think the customer is going to have to lead it. Uh, and it's not because I'm sort of like running away from my responsibility as a retailer. Um, but I think it, the customers starting to make a de- make demands in the way that they've done in, you know, diamonds and in the way that they've done in other industries. I think that will force the re- all of us to, to come together and, and do our jobs better. And does she have any tips for the leaders of tomorrow? I think the thing that served me incredibly well is taking chances, even though... I wasn't always sure that I could do what I was setting myself up to do. I think there's that, that thing that people talk about all the time about women look at a job description, see one thing they can't do and say and rule themselves out. Um, whereas men look at it and that one I was very male. So uh, I'd look at something and I think, can I do this? Does it feel that as if I can do it? Have I got a good chance of success and went for it? If I had to push too hard at a stuck door, that tended not to work for me. Um, and there have been instances where I really wanted something and I pushed too hard and it, it came back and bit me in the bum. Um, but actually, um, taking chances generally has worked well for me. Um, and just holding my breath and thinking, I can do it. Let me go for it. It served me well. You've been listening to Inspiring Women, a podcast series for Side Business School.